Hello everyone, it's July 5th, 2022. So Capstone is on its translunar trajectory. We're going to talk about where the mission stands so far and some of the technology and techniques used to keep it on target for its mission. It's a small spacecraft in a strange orbit. There's so much to learn, so let's do it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 366 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So, Dennis, you said that you've been playing uh, Fall Guys as well, right? It is such a fun, silly game. <laughs> it really is. I'm sure that everyone listening probably already knows, and I'm the only one who doesn't, but what exactly is the game about? It's an obstacle course game. So you have to run, you know, you start at one place, there's 60 people all piled together in a crowd, and then there's a finish line over, you know, on the other side of the map but then there's going to be all these like maybe giant balls bouncing on you and there's going to be platforms moving around and spinning and things hitting you and so it's just yeah it's a kinetic game in that sense and you you bounce off the other players too and so yeah it's, you go into ragdoll mode almost immediately all all of the props all look like they're foam like wrapped mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. like vinyl or whatever like it really does look like wipeout bright shiny colors and silly costumes that you can earn it's it's good for casual players so that's why you you would i think you would have fun doing it so that sounds like an endorsement so anyone who hasn't played it i guess check it out <laughs> <laughs> capstone uh so far it's Yay. been a success right yeah. i believe that, that this mission right there was no first stage retrieval i think they said they were going to take a break for a launch or yeah. two and then go back to it but that's that's a really good thing to point out so no first stage retrieval and so far um i guess as we recorded this capstone has been launched but right now it's still attached to geez what's what's it called Lunar the, uh, photon. Photon. Yeah. the photon i was like it's a subatomic particle which one is it I <laughs> Yeah, the W minus. <laughs> yeah. So right now it's it's still attached to Photon, but I think within the next 15 hours, it will be launched from that vehicle. It'll be separating. Oh, is that and... I, thought, I thought it wasn't going to separate until it got much closer to the moon. Monday, July 4th, tomorrow is when it's going to separate from the Oh, Photon. really? Okay. So from the 28th to the 4th is pretty darn good. Right. Because it has its own propulsion, which you hopefully pointed out which yep. via stellar exploration. So, yeah. 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 Okay. So um, I mostly wanted to talk about Capstone. We definitely need to talk about Lunar Photon at some point. But uh, but Capstone is is pretty simple. It's a six U CubeSat. Uh, the bus was designed and fabricated by Tyvek, um, and they they also did the instrument integration, which you kind of expect. They ship all the instruments to Tyvek. They build it and plug in all the parts, and then. Um, ship it out. Uh, the propulsion, like you said, is uh, made by Stellar Exploration. Uh, they did the design and the fabrication. And their propulsion system, I've seen called like innovative or, you know, all these new things, but it seems like a, a pretty straightforward hydrazine uh, propulsion system. Um, but they did receive SBIR funding, Stellar Exploration did. Um, so, you know, that kind of funding usually is going to, it, what is it, small business innovation research, something like that? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, in, oh, did I get it right on? <laughs> Great. Yeah, I think okay. so. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's intended to be um, small, small amounts of money that can potentially make a big difference. Um, so, you know, innovation is uh, a big part of that, but I, I'm not exactly sure what the innovative part of this is, although they do have a, a pretty good, uh, efficiency for just being hydrazine thrusters. So, um, 
the propulsion module sits at the bottom of the vehicle and there are eight quarter newton hydrazine thrusters on it and these hydrazine thrusters have a specific impulse of 200 seconds which is pretty darn good for you know for small hydrogen thrusters on board they have uh, 3.25 kilograms of fuel which equates to a little more than 200 meters per second of delta v and then just to give you an idea of the amount of delta V that this thing is going to have to use, 120 meters per second are required to insert into the near rectilinear halo orbit after, you know, it's separated from photon. Photon isn't going to be doing that. Photon's just getting it up to the transfer orbit. Um, 40 meters per second are required for the 18 months of orbital maintenance that they're planning. And then five meters per second are required for disposal at the end of life. And and I'm actually kind of interested in in how disposal is going to work. Oh, I think they're just going to smash it in the moon. Yes, but the question is, how do they get there? I got it at the I got it at the end. We'll talk about it. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So that's the bus, the propulsion, and then the other big thing on board is CAPS, the Cis Lunar Autonomous Positioning System, and this is uh, really really cool. This isn't something that we've done a whole heck of a lot of. It is a peer-to-peer navigation system and is built by Advanced Space. Um, Advanced Space also owns and operates Capstone as, as an entire vehicle. Um, and so the idea is uh, Capstone will be determining its position relative to LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. I, I believe during its whole life, they're going to be basing like 90% of their guidance commands on position from ground stations. So this is more of, more of a demonstration, but uh, they do have a, a large period of time where they're going to be just working on getting caps dialed in. And so maybe at some point they'll be able to do that, do positioning work only with caps. And then in the future, this will be a, you know, validated technology that people can rely on hopefully. And so the way CAPS works is, um, it, ta- I mean, it basically sends signals back and forth and, and does telemetry based ranging. LRO doesn't have any special equipment on board. It's just got an S band crosslink antenna. Um, and so it'll be using that to talk to Capstone. And then Capstone has this fancy antenna. It, it's got, um, S band. I can't remember what, what like standard communication antennas it has on. It's, I think it's S band and C band, uh, low gain and high gain, just like glued on the side of the thing. Um, but then if you look at a photo of this thing, it's got this big square, uh, it almost looks like a square parasol, uh, like a flat parasol sticking off of the front. And that is uh, a swift SLX, uh, antenna. So Tethers Unlimited, a company that this show is patently a fan of, uh, developed, um, their swift line of antennas. Um, and they have, uh, swift SLX, uh, STX, like all these different variants. SLX is S band, L band, and then X, I guess is like transmit receive. Cause you do TXRX, but th- this is like, uh, a software defined radio, um, that's all like one package. Um, you know, it's the antenna and power and everything. You can get it all in one box and they have some special, uh, software that they can use to turn it into a ranging instrument. Uh, and I'm assuming do some additional work, like maybe angle finding and things like that. But, um, yeah, I mean, like when you look at capstone, like it's got this, there's one big feature that you can see other than the, the solar arrays, 
um, which kind of fold up and like hug its belly. You know, it's got this one big feature and it is an antenna. And it's, it's not very often that you see that on vehicles that aren't going to, you know, Mars or, you know, one of the outer planets that got to Saturn, you know, then you see giant dishes. Um, so yeah, I, I think, uh, I think that's going to be pretty cool to see how that works out and hopefully to see some papers come out of me. We'll learn a little bit more about it. When I was here, you talking about how you typically don't have an antenna be mm-hmm. such a prominent feature of such a small you know, spacecraft is that this is going to be the first cislunar CubeSat. Well, I mean, I, okay. Cislunar, <laughs> right. So cislunar as opposed to translunar. No, cislunar means like beyond. I, cis and translunar are bad descriptors because they're used for different things. But like translunar is like high altitude and then cislunar is moon orbit. And not beyond. Is that right? Like I thought it meant like between here and the moon, but I guess it means more like. Yeah, I figured, yeah, you're not going. Well, yeah. So what's between, you know, high Earth orbit and interplanetary? Cislunar. (laughs) It's cislunar. And then translunar space is like going beyond the moon. Okay. Because I was going to say like, well, we've sent CubeSats to Mars. Oh, yeah. So that's not. Yes. So cis means near, right? And so it, it. if it's beyond the moon, then it's not cislunar. Maybe I'm confused because I'm coming from a chemistry aspect where we say cis to mean two things on the same side and trans to mean two things on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like I said, people use these in totally different ways. Like, like I've heard people call Capstone a translunar vehicle. Well, yeah, on the way out, it's definitely going past the right. pretty far out. <laughs> yeah. Beyond the Earth's hill sphere sphere a little bit i didn't talk about its or i didn't take any notes about its trajectory because we've already talked about it in the past so it's going on a, a ballistic lunar trajectory or blt which is a wonderful Ooh, and easy to delicious. remember acronym but the, the way the blt works is that it basically goes well beyond uh the moon's orbit even outside the earth's uh hill sphere it looks like so that way it starts to be influenced enough by the sun's gravity that that then torques it and raises its uh apogee or sorry raises its perigee as well as changes its inclination to have the perigee correspond to the moon's orbit and the inclination correspond to whether you want a polar lunar orbit or an mm-hmm. equatorial lunar orbit or whatever and so yeah and so they it's going to take months to go out there but it's it's, it's low energy low mm-hmm. delta v and that's kind of the appeal of it and the idea is that ultimately we're going to be sending elements of gateway out there using the same way right so i i have to point out leon in the chat says yes the term translunar injection orbit confuses things thank you very much and, oh that's a and, good call <laughs> and that that's how i would use cis and trans in this context would be translunar means crossing into a lunar orbit but so it's, it does do a tli that's true and yeah so but right. ultimately, <laughs> it will be in cislunar space, though, when it's in the NRHO, yeah. Yeah, yeah. at least. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so the timeline for this guy uh, is pretty long. I mean, like, the transfer itself is expected to take three or four months. Um, and so, like, that includes raising the orbit out of Earth, which has already happened, separation of the spacecraft from photon, which is about to happen, and then waiting until it's time to do the the insertion into uh, the near rectilinear halo orbit. L plus four to five months-ish is when uh, the primary demonstration is going to happen. Um, they're going to be primarily looking at the dynamics of the NRHO orbit, um, as well as doing their initial uh, LRO crosslink tests, uh, lunar reconnaissance orbit crosslink tests. And then 
uh, at L plus 10 to 22 months, they're going to be, um, finished with like the primary demonstration and they're going to be going into uh, quote technology enhancement operations. So this is kind of an interesting term because it's not um, advanced technology demonstration, it's enhancement operations. So I think to me that suggests that they're going to be dialing in some of the way that they do things, maybe actually tweaking software, uh, maybe just figuring out when it's best to do some of these ranging operations or whatever. Uh, but they're going to be doing additional NRHO assessment uh, and doing actual operations uh, in NRHO. Remember, they have dedicated, what is it, 40 meters per second of delta V for maintaining this orbit. So they're going to, they're going to be doing a decent amount of, of, orbit orbital maintenance station keeping kind of stuff um they're going to be doing an autonomous system evaluation and from my understanding that is where they will be potentially using um just their swift slx antenna ranging doing peer-to-peer ranging um and from my understanding when when they're not relying on ground systems uh the vehicle will be making autonomous decisions to um to keep its orbit steady. Really cool. I don't know if that'll actually be tied to, to engine burns or not. Maybe not, maybe not at the beginning, maybe a little bit later on, but you know, it'd be cool. Um, Very cool. Yeah. So these two are kind of the same thing, but autonomous system evaluation, but then also they'll be continuing their LRO ranging experiments. They also are going to be demoing quote, increased fidelity caps, unquote. So I'm not sure if this means like, you have more knowledge about how all this, like how, how the actual imp- implementation works. And that means that you get more precision out of the same data, or if it means that they have like increased capability modes that they can enable once they're out of the initial demonstration. I mean, that language, it sounds like either of those could fit the description, increased fidelity caps. Good. I'm glad I'm, I'm not alone yeah. in it. Like we're, we're the ladders. You're thinking they just basically, I don't know, use more processing power or something like that, but it runs a little slower, but maybe they can get a little more precise navigation measurements. That's kind of what yeah. you think of Yeah, or, you know, it's software-defined radio. Like, it's all magic. Like, <laughs> as far as I know, all software-defined radio setups have got a magic button that says do better or something. Like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it really is uh, a mysterious, hand-wavy, black magic kind of stuff. All right. And then um, the entire capstone mission is planned to run for 24 months. So at once they start getting up towards two years, um, and that's two years from launch, not two years from uh, NRHO insertion, but they'll be doing their disposal operations. And so, Dennis, you you made this sound like it was, oh, you just you crash on the surface of the moon. But hmm. you've already read my notes, so you know how they're doing this. But w- did you know where they were going to be crashing into the moon? Nope. And I didn't either. So... Um, they're going to be the NRHO that they've selected there. I believe you've got one that is high altitude above the South pole and then one that's high altitude above the North pole. I think you can flip them back and forth. And um, because lunar gateway is going to be in the, the South, the high altitude South pole configuration, that's what they're in. And so they're going to be smacking into basically the North pole. Um, I found an impact estimate location that had, I think six uh, numbers after the decimal point. And that's far too precise. There, there's, 
no way that they're even going to have that number in memory once they get out two years out, right? They're, they're not going to care about this simulation that somebody ran and copied and pasted too many numbers. But for a reasonable amount of SIG digs, they're going to be impacting at 81.9 north, 15.2 degrees east. So that's basically the North Pole. Uh, that, that's eight, eight degrees away from the North Pole. And so since they're going to be high altitude, above the South Pole, my thought was, well, they don't need five meters per second. They're so high up. They just need to sneeze and they'll slow themselves down enough, lower their paraloon and just smack into the North Pole. But they're actually going to do their burn at paraloon instead of apaloon. And then they're not going to impact until two revolutions later. And this is all down to the weirdness that our keystone orbits and uh, the near rectilinear halo orbit, which is basically um, a, a modified Lagrange point orbit. It's really bizarre mm. uh, dynamics for somebody who is used to Kerbal Space Program. Like you literally could not do this orbit in Kerbal Space Program with the patched Conics model. It doesn't. It doesn't work. You need. Uh, three bodies at minimum to be able to do this, but they, they're going to do this five meter per second burn at Paraloon and that will cause their orbit to decay every orbit and two orbits later they'll smack into the surface. Uh, and they are estimating that they'll smack into the surface at 2.3 kilometers per second at something that's basically a horizontal approach angle. Their angle relative to the surface when they impact is expected to be, you know, like 10 degrees above the horizon at most. Like it's really, really shallow. Um, so it, it it's going to be cool. Yeah. I think this is one of the coolest like demonstrations of how weird and cool modern um, three-body orbital dynamics can really be. Yeah, that that's impressive. I mean, just with like, like you said, five meters per second delta V, right? That's all they have to work with. And then, and to me, it seems surprising, but then, well, you know, I don't understand this stuff like truly. So, you know, that, that they can make such an accurate prediction, which of course, like you said, it's probably not going to really, you know, be exactly as they think it's going to be, but still, I mean, um, and that even it could impact two revolutions later. That actually yeah. kind of surprises me. Isn't that I don't crazy? Know if that anyone else. No, that yeah. that's. I think that's so fascinating that you can do a deorbit burn and still survive your next orbit <laughs> yeah. without without an and, atmosphere, right? And so I wonder if it's going to, like you said, it's coming in very shallow. Like you think it? I mean, there's a possibility that it might impact the side of a crater or something, which would be kind of neat. Yeah, I mean, the North Pole is yeah. is very cratered. I think it's almost certain, though, that whatever they hit they're going to send debris flying up into a very high orbit. Um, and it'll, so, you know, the initial impact is not going to be the end of this thing. Like it's going to skip and bounce and then fly up to almost the initial Apple that is so high for NRHO. And, and I'm expecting because it will have only lost momentum at that point. I don't think any fragment other than very, very rare fragments that got, um, you know, flipped or something, uh, and, and, uh, catapulted up into a faster speed. I think all of these, um, are, are only going to decay more in that one orbit they have left before they impact mm -hmm. the surface again. But like, we're going to, 
imagine somebody standing on the surface and, you know, they're like tending their moon crops and suddenly this spacecraft comes screaming in and just boom. And I'm like, crap, that was fast. Like what? Like is somebody like firing mortar shells at me? And then how, I don't remember how long this orbit is, but you know, it's, it's a good couple of hours. Uh, it's, oh no, it's, it's a, it's a quarter of a month, right? Because, because that's the way NRHL, it, it's roughly a quarter of a month. So like a week later, they're out tending their crops and, you know, they're finally got all the dust off of their solar panels and everything. And suddenly this hail of small pieces starts coming in. Um, and like, th- that's, that's not, that's not normal, you know, like pieces skipping back up and then impacting downrange somewhere is okay, fine. But to have basically all the orbital speed that they need to make it all the way around, I think it's going to be cool. Hopefully we can track some of this. I don't know if we'll actually be able to, but it's very cool. Yeah. Leon asks how many bounces and boy, at least one of these pieces, I guarantee will get three bounces. Uh, related note. Did you hear about the, um, I guess it was the, uh, like a long March body or whatever that impacted the moon. And they, they found the craters recently and there were two craters intersecting each other. Uh, so they were kind of surprised about what had happened. Doesn't that make them. sense though? Because we thought that it had, it had had a fragmentation event. That would make sense if it had a fragmentation event. I don't like, yeah. <laughs> if I remember correctly, we, we saw it break into at least two major pieces. Yeah. I, I, I didn't look into it much. I just remember seeing a top level thing saying it was unclear why there were, there'd be two in this case, but and I, I could be misremembering after, after it was first identified. And I was like reading everything that Jonathan McDowell had written in the last month, you know, like, <laughs> I could be misremembering or they could have been talking about something else. Like it might've been something else that it could, that it, that they ruled out because the other thing had fragmented or had a, a propulsive vent or something. I don't know. Okay. So just three short and sweets this week. Dennis, what's the first one? Aerospace firm to build launch complex in Maine. Blue Shift Aerospace, headquartered in Brunswick, Maine, has announced that a coastal fishing village, Steuben, will be the host of its planned spaceport. The company is planning orbital launches eventually from the site and hopes to build a mission control center and rocket manufacturing facility in the town. Local opposition has previously stopped them from pursuing development in the nearby town of Jonesport. Blue Shift plans to launch their small, non-toxic-fueled vehicles from a so-called lift boat, which contains retractable posts that can lower to the ocean floor and lift the vehicle out of the water before launch. Next up, Perseverance wind sensor has been damaged. Part of the rover's meteorological package, the Mars Environmental Dynamics Analyzer, or MEDA, has been damaged by higher-than-expected winds. In particular, one of the two wind sensors was damaged by pebbles carried aloft during recent strong gusts. This has reduced the sensitivity and capabilities of the sensor, but it still provides speed and direction magnitudes. The mission team is now adjusting the retrieval procedure to get more accuracy from the undamaged sensor's readings. And then next up, two out of two XCVAs ain't bad. Axiom Space and Collins Aerospace were announced as the winners in a contract to build the next generation of EVA suits for NASA's ISS and Artemis missions. At the time, no information was given as to why these companies were chosen, but in a later source selection statement, NASA revealed that these two companies were the only ones to submit complete proposals by the December 21st deadline. NASA gave both proposals similar mission suitability scores and has praised both companies for having high commonality between the ISS and Artemis versions of each company's suit. So that answers a big question we had about, right. is it one suit for each or, yeah, so each company is going to be doing two suits. Mm. So yeah, you have a 
an ISS version and then a lunar version for each of them, and they have high commonality. All right, so let's move along to this week in spaceflight history. We have six winners, and three of them get bonus points. So the correct answers were Law Loving, Hydrek, and Feeman, and then the other, or My I'm sorry. God. Iron Man. Um, the other correct answers with bonus points to Michael Freeman, the Greek, and Deskin Miller. So lots of winners. And the clue, um, the recycled clue that we've used numerous times, yeah. um, if a rocket explodes and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? So I guess, Ben, tell us, if a rocket does explode and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? I mean, I would say no, because sound is is a sensory experience rather than a, a physical property of something. <laughs> but um, this week in spaceflight history is the 5th of July, 1966. It was the launch of AS-203. So AS-203, oh boy, I was going to start talking about AS-202, but I guess I need to tell you what AS-203 is. So AS-203 was a Saturn 1B mission. Uh, this was leading up to the crewed launches uh, of Saturn V that would eventually lead to us landing on the moon. Um, and of, of course, the early human spaceflight program was totally iterative. Uh, NASA tested one thing and then another thing and split all these different um, goals out into different missions. And it's the right way to do things to f weather your failures, I guess. <laughs> so AS-202 was a, was a previous mission. It was going to be uh, actually the second suborbital test of the C Apollo Command Service Module. Um, but that mission was delayed uh, for a bunch of different reasons, uh, primarily because the CSM that was planned to fly in that one hadn't arrived at the Cape yet. Um, but the whole the whole program was just absolute shambles. Uh, so AS-203 flew, and then AS-202 flew after that, and then after that was AS-204, and that was the first crude test of CSM with, with people on board. It was a suborbital test. So the Saturn 1B is already sort of an odd-looking vehicle, but AS-203 was an even weirder-looking version of Saturn 1B. It had no CSM, so instead it had... Um, uh, an aerodynamic cone on top and the the cone sat on top of the second stage which was an s4b specifically an s4b 200 and so the, the s4b is already a wide part of a rocket right like when you think about saturn 5 flying to the moon you know you see all of these all, all the places where the diameter of the rocket narrows going up to the next uh, to the next vehicle. And the side, the diameter difference between, uh, S4B and the CSM is already pretty significant. You, you get this pretty conical interstage. Um, but to shorten the distance between the diameter of S4B and nothing, right? Like the yeah. tip. Um, to shorten it down so far, it, it really looks goofy and it looks like something out of Kerbal Space Program with the, the auto generated or the procedural fairings, you know, that they, that they have. So really, really kind of weird. So like I said, this was, uh, an S4B 200. Um, the lunar Apollo missions used, uh, an S4B 500. Um, and the, the big thing that changes between these two is the 500 has got a larger auxiliary propulsion system and it also has ullage engines. I'll talk about 
what is there instead of those two things on the 200 in the in a sec here so the launch of the vehicle when it actually launched was just about picture perfect if you look at the calendar now you know that it launched at the beginning of july it was delayed from i think it was supposed to launch in may they had started doing um their pre-launch preparations back in april and hit their first big uh, their first big snag, um, while they're doing like testing and, and checkout, uh, tasks. And, oh man, it, it's mostly in ground equipment. Um, so the, the ground computer used for these tests was the RCA 110A. There were, there were a couple of RCA 110s. Uh, this was A. A actually wound up getting cannibalized, uh, for, I believe, AS202. Maybe it was AS204. Um, but these ground computers, like they were, NASA was shipping parts back to the manufacturer, uh, cause, cause things were so bad. In this particular instance, they were re-experiencing a lot of the issues that they had experienced for AS201. Um, and they included, um, cracked solder joints on the PCBs. Uh, these solder joints were cracking. Um, due to the salt atmosphere, even though the thing is indoors, there's still a lot of salt in the air. Mm. And, um, it, it was a really horrible kind of, uh, of issue because it was dependent on the temperature of the board as it heated up, it, it spread these gaps open and suddenly you have an, an air gap in a wire where you wouldn't expect one. Um, and then you shut the thing down, you start it up after it's cooled down and it works fine again. They wound up, um, for sure replacing 2000 boards. Uh, a document that I found said that they planned on replacing another 4000. And my only assumption is that they did get up to the, you know, 8000 plus replaced PCBs. And then they, they had additional unspecified issues. I wasn't able to find, uh, too many exact, uh, examples, but like, during AS201, um, the, the RCA computer, uh, did really crazy things. Um, it had a, a drum that was used for memory. And at one point, the drum decided to switch directions and start doing output instead of in, or start doing input instead of collecting output. And so it started feeding back into the computer commands that the computer had already executed hours before. Um, believe it or not, there was a Y2K style error, um, where <laughs> the software couldn't handle, actually, I don't even know if it was software at this point, uh, but the computers couldn't handle the rollover from 2359 to 000 at midnight. Um, and they, you know, at midnight, the things would just break and you had to restart them. When they were doing these tests, they basically had like two hours where they could have the computers running and actually do tests on the vehicle. And the rest of the day was spent chasing down all of these bugs and, and breaks and, you know, fires of all sorts. But once they got through all of those testing issues, they launched and it was beautiful. Um, they launched out of a slick 37B. Actually, I guess it would have been LC. 37B back then. Um, but this would be the first launch of a Saturn 1B from Pad 37B. Um, later on, I had to go check because I was like, how many S1Cs did we, did we actually, or uh, S1Bs did we actually launch? Huh. It turns out both, I believe the, uh, both, um, ASTP and then the, the first two Skylab missions, the Skylab crewed missions launched off of this pad as well. So, you know, it is actually an auspicious start that's that's worth mentioning. 
I found a couple of different numbers for its orbit. The initial report said that they made it into a 185 by 189 kilometer orbit, uh, aiming for a 185, 185 orbit, I believe. I found other numbers that said 184 by 214 kilometers. And my first instinct was, oh, okay, they must have restarted the J2 engine. Um, but I confirmed that no J2 restart was performed. They simply didn't have enough fuel for it, which is funny because they had a lot of fuel. Uh, they didn't have enough propellants to do a J2 restart. So the primary intent of this mission was to test the propulsion systems and the, the propulsion storage systems. So they did what they called a simulated restart of the J2 engine. Um, they didn't actually fire it up. I think all they did was chill down uh, the engine and the fuel lines and also test some of the recirculation hardware. They also tested the APS, the auxiliary propulsion system. Uh, so this was the, the first time that, that the APS had been tested on orbit. And so it's it's just a, I believe, a hydrazine uh, propulsion unit that can provide roll control. Um, and it wound up being the way that, I mean, it was planned, but we did end up using a, a slightly beefier version of APS, I believe, uh, for the actual like lunar Apollo missions. Um, so that, that was an important thing to begin testing. This also was one of the first, uh, uses of the IU, the instrumentation unit. Um, and they, they put that thing through its paces as well. And so that's not exactly propulsion systems, but I'm, I'm lumping it in. So I have fewer bullet points. So that the propulsion systems, they also were looking at, uh, cryogenic nitrogen. So inside that really stubby nose cone, they had a spherical, uh, nitrogen tank with a bunch of sensors attached to it. Um, and so they were looking at how, how cryogenic nitrogen behaves on orbit. Really kind of wish they would have looked at supercritical CO2, which wound up exploding on, uh, on Apollo 13. Uh, but you know, they, they wouldn't have been able to, to catch that issue this early. Uh, totally, totally different system. Hadn't even been finalized yet. <laughs> All right. Um, and then they were also looking at liquid hydrogen in weightlessness. So the hydrogen's the fuel, and they had a bunch of this stuff on board. In fact, they kind of set some records. Uh, so first off, um, the instrumentation, they had 88 sensors. I'm not sure if that's all all those sensors are for the hydrogen tank, or if that's 88 sensors between the hydrogen tank and the nitrogen tank. But they had 88 sensors, as well as two cameras embedded in the top of the LH2 tank. One of them failed before launch, and they decided to, to go ahead and fly with just one camera, and they got really good footage. So some of the things that they were looking at were the anti-slosh measures, um, so some of the, like the baffles inside the tank. Um, they were also looking to see if the fuel lines and the engines, how well they could control the temperature, how well they behaved at different temperatures, um, and they just wanted to make sure nothing was going to freeze up. So one of the reasons that they didn't bring along a CSM, I mean, A, they didn't need it. B, they didn't have any. <laughs> available <laughs> C, but C, they want, they designed this mission without one so that they could get as much propellant into orbit as possible. So what they did was they overfilled, uh, the LH2 tank and they underfilled the LOX tank. Um, and by doing that, you know, they're, they're not going to burn all of the propellants and they don't want to, they want to have extra on orbit and they, they weren't really terribly interested in studying the liquid oxygen. Remember, the liquid oxygen tank wasn't 
didn't, didn't have cameras in it either. So they skewed their balance and you can kind of think of it as I'm treating uh, a portion of their hydrogen as cargo. And, you know, instead of putting it in its own cargo container, its own, its own tank or something, they just put it into the normal propellant tank and just like ran with it. So by doing this, um, they were able to achieve, I actually don't know how much fuel they had on orbit, but their math said that they were guaranteed to have 8,600 kilograms of LH2 or more once they got to orbit. And, uh, they, they did meet that objective. I don't know if they overshot it by very much. All of this is really weird. I, I said that it, uh, set some records. So this wound up being the lightest Saturn S1B ever launched. And it also wound up being the heaviest object that the U.S had gotten to orbit at the time. Obviously, we've gone way past that now. But like at the time, it was both the lightest and the heaviest, depending on what end of the launch you looked at. That that seems weird until you, you, know, you think about the fact that making your vehicle lighter means you can go farther. Even though in this case, they're messing with the fuel and oxygen ratios by transferring some of their uh, payload into uh, into fuel, they, they wind up, you know, part of that getting rid of oxygen turns out to reduce the actual gross weight. I don't know. It's, it's kind of a cool dynamic that m it makes me happy that I understand how that works. You know, like, it's just <laughs> like, oh yeah. Okay. I gotcha. Lightest and heaviest, you know, the tyranny of the rocket equation. Let's, let's go to space. So once they got to orbit, um, they did a number of experiments. Um, they did some free coasting, uh, to, characterize and they even tried to attempt to control how much drag was placed on the vehicle. Um, you know, they're not that high up. There's still atmospheric drag. So I, I think what they were looking at was like, is atmospheric drag worth using for ullage? Is atmospheric drag something that we can control? Can we reduce how much drag, uh, we're experiencing to stay in orbit longer? Uh, can we increase the amount of drag so that, you know, maybe we have a little, uh, an extra way to, to control the vehicle. But, you know, ultimately we didn't know that much about the upper atmosphere at this time. It was 1966, right? Mm -hmm. So actually, uh, collecting data on that is really good. Of course they had the, the cameras and all the sensors. There's actually pretty decent footage and we'll have a link in the show notes. Um, you can watch, um, fuel float around in zero gravity. Uh, it's, very, very similar to modern tank cameras that you'll see, uh, just black and white and shot using a potato instead of a modern camera. Then they, they did an interesting experiment. They did a, a rapid fuel depressurization test where they're like, okay, how much fuel can we dump? I suppose is, is what they were getting at. All the fuel tests were actually sort of a follow on. Um, Langley had done preliminary fuel tests just before this happened. So June 7th of 1966, same year, just a month before, uh, they had flown a WASP sounding rocket with a transparent scale model of the S2 fuel tank. And they had cameras and they got seven minutes of weightlessness and watched fuel float around in a scale fuel tank. I wish we did things that simple and delightful these days. Cause like that, that's just cool. Like that's something that a college, <laughs> uh, a college rocket team would do. Um, but you know, it's NASA doing it like, eh, it's cool. So then they, they did one final, uh, pressurization test. Um, it was called the closed fuel tank pressurization test. And basically what they did was they closed the LH2 vents and left the locks vents open 
that this is a bad situation, but it, it doesn't seem like it's necessarily something that you would avoid at all costs. In the future, um, the S4B would have ullage motors attached to it. For this vehicle, they didn't have ullage motors, but they did have uh, propulsive vents. So they could dump, when, when they vented liquid oxygen, the, the vents actually were pointed backwards and they actually provided enough thrust to provide a, a limited ullage burn. So if if they were actually to have restarted this thing, they would have opened the locks vents wide open, waited for the propellants to settle, and then started up the engine. So it, it's not totally crazy to think that there could be a situation where you might have intentionally opened the the locks vents and, and closed the LH2 vents. Um, but I think the real reason that they were doing this was a stress test that on the ground, um, they had actually done this test and they ruptured the common bulkhead. So these two tanks, um, are not two spheres sitting next to each other or, you know, like a, a tablet and a capsule sitting next to each other or whatever. Um, they had a common bulkhead. So the, the liquid hydrogen tank was on top and it was shaped like a smush sphere or like a, a short, tablet or a short uh capsule like a, a medicine capsule and then the the oxygen tank is on the bottom and the top of the oxygen tank is convex into the tank and then the bottom of it is concave mm-hmm. poking out of of the center so this common bulkhead has only a, a limited strength but by making it the same piece of metal you get you know weight savings and so they did this test where they basically ask the hydrogen to go high pressure and the oxygen to go low pressure. And they wanted to see what this rupture looked like um, in a vacuum rather than at sea level uh, atmospheric pressure, more or less. And um, unfortunately, the, this pressure differential overcame the strength of the common bulkhead while it was out of view of the ground station. So they didn't get live data as it was going. Um, but once it did reappear uh, on their scopes, as it were, they did not see what they expected. Um, they saw the vehicle in a bunch of different pieces instead of like the rocket and maybe some debris near it. Like th- this thing absolutely tore itself apart. Mm. And so they believe that there was a spark that actually ignited uh, the propellants and caused an explosion um, and, and just tore the thing apart. But you know, they weren't going to recover this vehicle anyway. This was the very last thing that they were doing. As far as I understand, they didn't have anything planned after this test, uh, which makes sense because it was going to destroy the vehicle. And so it just, you know, it's kind of a successful failure. I mean, I could have gone with the clue successful failure, I suppose, but we've done that too many times as well. But like, you know, it's one of those things where like it fails in a way you didn't expect and maybe you didn't get as much data as you hoped, but like you you have one more data point, uh, one one more expectation uh, to inform your future decisions. Boy, that sounds poetic. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That that's that's the clue right there. Um, if a rocket explodes in space, does it make a sound? Well, I mean, no. Something exploding in space, sound or you know the the pressure waves that make up sounds don't transmit through a vacuum. But if you've got somebody listening on a radio, sure, that's somebody hearing 
hearing noise, hearing acoustic energy and interpreting it as sound. But in this case, nobody was even there to read numbers, much less turn them into a sound hmm. uh, at any point. This thing exploded in the dark. What's interesting is that, like you said, it occurred during a loss of signal period, which apparently was just a two-minute gap there, right? So it happened within that two minutes between those two ground stations, which were the main spacecraft center and Trinidad tracking station. That's what it says in Wikipedia, at least. Mm. So it was a pretty narrow window, and it just happened to happen Isn't that crazy? there. Bad luck. That sucks, yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'll take that answer to that age-old philosophical question, mm -hmm. at least as it pertains to rockets exploding. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for that wonderful old school explodey uh, <laughs> yeah. twist if that actually has a good answer to that question. <laughs> oh, it's, it's it's just got all the delightful things, doesn't it? It's got a, it's got mm. explosions. It's got mm. Apollo era hardware. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. And it's got the very difficult to disentangle uh, naming convention with all the AS20 <laughs> blank missions. And so, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a fun rabbit hole to go through. So, David, next week is the 12th of July to the 18th of July. Do you have a clue for us? Yes, I do. And the clue is for 2013, no alarms and no surprises except the one. And if you want full credit or bonus points, you'll have to tell me why I picked or the specifically why I chose that clue. Mm. I'm interested to see who gets this one or at least who guesses and knows uh, the reason for the clue. There you go. It'll be fun. You've got an extra challenge coming from David. Yeah. So if you think you know what the answer is, shoot us an email or you can tweet at us with the hashtag uh, ThisWeekSF and good luck. Good luck. So moving on to the upcoming spaceflight events, we have uh, six events. Five of them are launches, actually. So a lot of launches. What's the first one, Ben? All right. First up is a Vega C launching Lares 2. Now, I've been directed to say this with some Italian mustard. So, Lares uh, 2. This is the maiden flight of Vega C. Very exciting. And uh, Lares 2 is a 20 centimeter sphere with mirrors on it. So, we're going it, to, it, it's totally passive. We're going to be pinging lasers off of it. And boy, if uh, lasers in space aren't fun. So this is going to be flying on Thursday, July 7th at 11.13 hours UTC. It's going to be flying out of uh, French Guiana, of course. Uh, and we have here uh, Launch Area 1. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Godspeed, Vega C. Let's forget how we congratulate maiden flights. Fly safe, Vega C. How about that? That'll work, yeah. I think Godspeed is what you would say, right? Yeah, like that too. That if I felt like there was something in the back of my head and it, it was... Uh, it was Scott Manley. And then next up on the same day, July 7th, we have a Falcon 9, and that is launching another Starlink mission, uh, 421, uh, Starlink Group 421. So, uh, yep, another batch of 53 satellites for the Starlink Mega Constellation. You know the drill. These are going up, like, literally several times a week now. Yep. This will be launching at 1300 UTC from uh, Slick 40. So you can always check that one out. And if you miss it, just wait a day. Mm. And so next up, potentially completing or linking, I guess, uh, the Falcon 9 Starlink hat trick uh, this coming week mm -hmm. is another Starlink launch. And this is going to be Falcon 9, of course, taking Starlink 4-22 on July 10th. Uh, that's an NET, so I don't have a time for you. But this will be launching also out of the Cape three days after the one that David just talked about. So pretty quick turnaround. I mean, I know they got more than one pad, but still. <laughs> and then... Uh... The the end of the hat trick is a Falcon 9 Block 5 launching Starlink Group 3-1. Now, all of these are marked in launch library 
as being 53 satellites. And that's suspicious to me. I, I, I don't think people are that interested in how many, uh, how many Starlinks are on any particular launch anymore. So I think, uh, there's less, uh, less sleuthing going on and we just kind of settle into the most recent known number which is 53 so this is going to be flying no earlier than monday july 11th i i think for both of these last two uh the the day is is probably going to be uh fairly accurate um and this one is unlike the other two it's going to be launching out of vandenberg which is pretty cool uh slick 4e and then after that uh not a starlink is uh we have black brant 9 yes yeah, so july 12th it is launching the dual channel extreme ultraviolet continuum experiment or deuce which is a payload from the university of colorado we talked about this last week or at least we mentioned it um so this is just the week that it's actually going to happen in this will be launching at 10 57 UTC from a suborbital launch ramp in Arnhem. How do you say that? Arnhem Space yes, Center. Arnhem is what I would say. Arnhem. Arnhem the Space Center. Smoother. Okay. It's a it's Australia. It could be anything. And finally, the moment we've all been waiting for. On mm-hmm. Tuesday, July 12th, the first colored public JWST images will be released. And yay. so, yay! Right now, the commissioning is going well as of this recording. Uh, it looks like Nearus and Miri have been checked out for science. Uh, they're, they're all good to go. You still got NearCam and NearSpec to go through. But one way or another, uh, these images are going to be released on the 12th. And so you can check out NASA TV at 10.30 a.m. Uh, when they will be showing presumably a press conference or uh, something like that. And then uh, the fun doesn't stop there because the next day on Wednesday, July 13th, also on NASA TV at 3 p.m., you can watch uh, NASA Science Live where Webb's first full-color images will be explained. And so they're going to give uh, some more detail and context, although I'm sure everyone and their abuelas can be writing about it uh, on the Internet. So, uh, But super exciting. And uh, keep an eye out for that. Yeah, there are... Uh, both of those things are on NASA TV's YouTube channel. They're scheduled. So you can just go to YouTube, search for NASA and click videos, click the drop down, switch it to upcoming live streams and you can click notification and you'll get an email. And I, I have done that. I don't know if I will be around or available, but I really hope I'm going to get to watch this live because that's going to be very cool. Awesome. Okie doke. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. So let's deal with the show and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special shout out to Mike, Iron Man, Leon Running Man, Chubby, McGree, Kenton, Deathkin, and Chris for joining us live in today's chat. Thank you. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. And for more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so we'll see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you. Thank you.